everyone. If you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Hello, welcome to Controversies in Church History and our continuing series called Catholic Lives, a series in which I give mini biographies of lesser known Catholics throughout history. Non-saints basically is the only category here. This is episode 11, American Moses, Augustus Tolton. You may actually recognize that name, and I'm kind of fudging my standards here. Normally, no saints, probably not people who are going to be on the road to sainthood. It's the opposite in this case, because Augustus Tolton uh, is basically the, one of the first or the first black, American-born black priest in the United States. The cause for his canonization has already been opened. He's already been declared venerable, but his story is a really wonderful and inspiring one. So I thought this week we'd dive into his background. So let's get started. And if you don't know, just a little general background on Black Catholics in the United States, their existence in the States precedes the country itself, obviously, because of slavery. Um, but you wouldn't think there'd be that many Catholics, but there's a minority, um, as it still is part of the church today. Uh, owing to the twin circumstances, of course, of slavery, but also the place of, of uh, Black people you know, on the Latin borderlands of the future United States, the colonies of Spain, colonies of France, and of course, the one Catholic British colony, Maryland. In Maryland, uh, just after the American Revolution in 1785, John Carroll, the first bishop of the United States estimated there were about 3,000 um, Black Catholic slaves in the state of Maryland. In the 1790s, more Black Catholics would arrive from Haiti, fleeing the violent revolution there. By 1800, uh, major populations included uh, parts of southern Louisiana, southern Maryland, southern Missouri, and western Kentucky. And so there is a, a decently large population already. And it's in fact where we begin the story of Augustus Tolton is in Kentucky where his mother, uh, Martha Jane Chisley, uh, was actually given uh, as a dowry uh, because of her family that she was owned by, their daughter was getting married. So she was sent off with the daughter to Missouri uh, from Kentucky and moved to Bush Creek, Missouri near Hannibal, near the birthplace of Mark Twain. And in fact, both of the families that legally owned uh, Martha Jane, both in Kentucky and Missouri were were Catholic families. And they took their Catholic faith serious enough to try to have, they did have all their slaves baptized and taught the faith. And as far as I can tell, they weren't the worst of the bunch in terms of slave owners and the treatment of slaves. However, um, there was no real anti-slavery sentiment as far as I'm aware in Catholic circles in the antebellum South. These families, like other slave owners in the South, tried to keep their slaves from learning to read and write, so they could not get ideas of freedom in their head. And Southern Catholics, like most white Americans, believed in the complete superiority of the white race to the black. And so uh, even religious orders in the antebellum South uh, owned slaves, like the Jesuits who founded Georgetown University owned slaves. And just one last aside, part of the reason for this opposition to abolition probably went in hand in hand with the anti-Catholic bigotry of most abolitionist leaders who are mostly very devout Protestants who didn't like Catholicism very much. So 
you had um, things going on in the background there that made this uh, a reality. In any case, Augustus's mother, Martha in Bush Creek, would eventually marry her husband, another slave named Peter Paul Tolton, another Catholic. Um, the neighboring family was Catholic, and he was named after the priest who had baptized him. Together, they had three children, the oldest, a boy, Charlie, the middle child, Augustus, and a daughter named Anne. And so Augustus Tolton came into the world, uh, was born on April 1st, 1854, in uh, Bush Creek, Missouri, and was baptized about another month later, a couple months later, on May 29th of that year, at St. Peter's Church in, uh, in uh, what is today Renesler, I think is the way you pronounce it, Missouri. The actual church that he was baptized in is no longer there, but the one that was built in 1862 is still, it's, it's gained notoriety since his uh, cause for canonization has been uh, opened. And despite his owner's efforts to prevent this, uh, Peter Paul, his father, wanted to learn uh, to read and write. And so he made contact with the abolitionist forces in the area around um, Bush Creek, <clears throat> which if you don't know, was close to the Illinois, Missouri, Illinois border. And across the way, across the Mississippi River was lay the uh, city of Quincy, Illinois, which was a hotbed of abolitionism. And uh, a staunch, uh, for example, a staunch abolitionist named Richard Ells lived in Quincy from 1835 onwards. And his house in Quincy became a significant stop off on the Underground Railroad, helping uh, escaped slaves make their way to Chicago. And so there's a lot of conflict in Quincy uh, over this, which you couldn't keep away from the slaves, and which reached its height just before the Civil War in 1858, when the city of Quincy, Illinois, hosted the sixth and I believe final debate between Stephen A. Douglas and Abraham Lincoln during the senatorial campaign there. So they're in the mix of all this uh, when all this is going on prior to the Civil War. When war finally did come, Peter Paul would learn enough about uh, the evils of slavery and uh, wanted to do something about it, heard about other slaves leaving their plantations to go fight for the Union Army. And he decided that he himself had to do this for the sake of his children. And before he left, uh, Martha, one of the three kids, he told her that his children, quote, and I'm quoting here, must not be slaves. They must learn to read and write. And they must have a better life than we had. And so he went off to fight in the Union Army, which he never returned from. Uh, Peter Paul Tolton died of illness during the war and never saw his family again. And after he left, Martha, Jane, Martha, uh, Martha Tolton became worried for her two young sons and her daughter during the Civil War. Slave traders uh, were active in the area where they might take them away and sell them. And so she decided to um, take them and head for the north to cross the Mississippi River uh, from Renesler, uh, would have been Bush Creek back then, crossed the river into Illinois, and she, which she just managed to do before being caught by Confederate sympathizers. Uh, and again, we're talking about days on end, I'm sort of rushing through it here. It's a pretty amazing story in and of itself. And with barely any food, uh, marches her, her two young boys and an infant in her arms, makes it to Quincy about 30 miles from where she started where at that point, the early 1860s, they had a burgeoning colony of runaway slaves, about 300. There, she found work at a tobacco factory where Augustine and Char Augustus and Charlie uh, came to join her, 
Unfortunately, uh, Charlie was a sickly boy and died in 1863, aged only 10. And Augustus worked there for many years. Later on, he worked at a bottle factory in Quincy as well, as we're gonna see, saving his money. Now, his mother Martha was a devout woman and she took uh, her family once she got into Quincy to St. Boniface's church where a segregated congregation existed, uh, blacks uh, being seated separately from whites in the services. There, a kindly German priest welcomed them into the parish as did the nuns who were mostly German as well who ran the school. And Augustus took to this uh, right away. He loved going to mass. And so when the priest who was German would say the, you know, say the readings in German for his fellow countrymen uh, and English for everybody else, Augustus actually picked up on this and began speaking German uh, while he was there. And in fact, Martha enrolled Augustus in the parish school, where again, the nuns helped him uh, to learn to read and write, actually in both languages, English and German. Unfortunately, the German immigrant members of the parish reacted badly uh, to Augustus being led into the school. Uh, the students taunted him and bullied him mercilessly. And they, uh, some of them sent anonymous letters, threatening letters to the priest. Rumors circulated, uh, petitioned to remove him uh, from the parish. Things got so bad that after a time, Martha decided it was best to take Augustus out of the school, to which the priest, who was a kindly man that actually did care about um, Augustus and was not prejudiced in the way his, his fellow countrymen were reluctantly agreed. And so he went when he was 14 years old to the local segregated school for blacks. And uh, at the same time, his mother brought him to St. Peter's Parish, the other, um, the other uh, parish in uh, Quincy, Illinois, where they met Father Peter McGurr. And Father McGurr was an Irish priest much which you have in these, these uh, parishes in 19th century America are immigrants usually from Ireland or Germany. And he took an immediate interest in, in Augustus. You could see his piety, you could see how much time he spent at, uh, at mass um, for the Blessed Sacrament. And so he managed to get him uh, enrolled in the parish school, the nuns taught him. And very quickly he came to the conclusion, did Father McGurr, that uh, Augustus had a vocation to the priesthood, but he didn't push things. He wanted to wait until he could get him, I guess, prepared for the idea. Because of course, he enrolled him in the school there. He encountered, did Augustus some of the same problems, again, taunts, bullying from students, and efforts to get him out of there. And this time, I guess Father McGurr was a little more strong-willed than the earlier priest. When parishioners protested, tried to contact him, he simply ignored them. He actually left an entire delegation of parishioners standing outside in the snow one winter when they were trying to let him in, wanted to get in and talk to him about this. He simply refused to listen. And so he took um, Augustus under his wing, began to educate him. And then one day after he was getting coming out of mass, he suggested to the boy that he become a priest, which was a shocking idea to Augustus, uh, given what he'd experienced. He didn't think a black man would become a priest. And so he was elated to hear this. And so this set him on the path to his vocation. And so he spent the next, hmm, next better part of 10 years actually studying first under Father McGurr and then several other um, kind priests who helped him uh, over the years while serving at math at both parishes in Quincy, in Quincy uh, as well as for the nuns uh, at the St. Mary's Institute in Quincy as well. 
from there, he just uh, he applied to <clears throat> entrance to the seminary for the Franciscan monastery in Quincy, hoping to be uh, enrolled there. But he received a letter a few weeks later, rejected him, and it was a rejection that would be repeated often throughout the coming years to the effect stating that basically they didn't think the congregation, the people in the area were ready to accept a black priest. The first of many such rejections. Even at the same time, he began to save money <clears throat> for his education, took on another job, part-time job as custodian for both parishes in, uh, in Quincy to save money. In the meantime, Father McGurr tried several options, including writing a newly formed missionary order which was from England, which came to Baltimore, which was supposed to be dedicated to Africans, was also dedicated to Af uh, African-Americans in America. They'll come to be called the Josephites. It's, it's, a, it's still an order today uh, of, of black priests. By the time it uh, was brand new and they simply didn't have enough members or enough money, they simply did not have a seminary at the time. And so, <clears throat> in uh, uh, looking for other options, he sent uh, Augustus to Missouri, where a friend of his, a Father Patrick Dolan, uh, resided as a priest who he knew to be intellectually gifted to go study under him, which, by the way, was a great risk, uh, because this is during Reconstruction in the 1860s, where <clears throat> it happened sometimes that former slaves would be kidnapped and brought back to work on farms. But he went anyway, uh, lived with his mother there, and even though Father Dolan was an intellectually gifted man, he was very troubled, uh, mostly troubled with uh, drink. Uh, he succumbed to alcoholism while he was there, while Augustus was ironically working in a saloon to make men's meat while he was there, in which he, he had compassion on Father Dolan because he simply couldn't control himself. Uh, he gained sympathy to Tolton for people who ruined themselves through abuse this way, but it was no use. <clears throat> and so after some time, he decided it was time to leave and return to Quincy, <clears throat> excuse me. And so while there, he enrolled um, back in Quincy in St. Francis's College, which is the College of the Franciscans there, uh, the Franciscan school, um, under the direction of several priests, but particular one, Father Michael uh, Ricard, who was his, one of his mentors at the college. By this time in 1870, uh, in, uh, 1877, 1878, he's actually fluent in German as well as English. He can read in Latin and is beginning to learn Greek. So he's already obtaining the learning you need to be a priest at that point <coughs> at Quincy University. And in fact, <coughs> excuse me, at the behest of Father Michael Ricard, um, he becomes a late catechist for Black Catholics in Quincy. The um, uh, Blacks of the town at that point have become alienated from the parishes, so few attended them. And so um, uh, he was sent uh, to set up a school for these uh, black Catholics where he did the best he could trying to attract them to uh, the to back uh, to, the, the, to, uh, to the parishes in which he um, um, did his best, but they, they had a lot of opposition in the town, mostly from local Protestant churches. Uh, who tried to hinder some of his efforts, drove away his students. So initially it was a bigger success in terms of getting numbers of people in there. Um, but they did establish a school, uh, which would come to fruition in later years, did uh, Father uh, Tolton, future Father Tolton, and some of his priest accomplices. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
1879, Tolton was growing restless to start a seminary formation. And so Father McGurr um, uh, took a different tactic and wrote to his bishop, Bishop of Alton, which that's the Diocese of Springfield today, and asked him to plead Tolton's case to the Collegium Urbanum Propaganda de Fide in Rome. And the Propaganda de Fide, Propaganda for short, is the seminary for missionary priests in Rome. It was founded in the 1620s by Pope Urban VIII, hence the term, hence the name Collegium Urbanum. <clears throat> and asked him to be sent to, back to America as a missionary priest for the black population. The bishop agreed to this. He actually agreed to pay for his formation and he duly sent the request to, to Rome. Augustus, when he heard this, was overjoyed. Uh, after so many rejections, he hoped it would finally lead to him being accepted to one of these places. And so a few weeks later, when he got the news that he was rejected, he became almost in despair <clears throat> over this. Why is it that you know, God has called me to this? People keep rejecting me for what seems like no reason but race. Seeing his, his despondency, Father Ricard uh, from St. Francis wrote to his superior, the superior of the Franciscan order in Rome, and asked that uh, uh, Augustus, or they called him Gus, but we'll call him Father Augustus, uh, allowed to be, allowed, be allowed to enter the propaganda de fide as a missionary, not for America, but for Africa instead. That was one of the things that the Franciscan order was doing at the time, apparently. And so Father Ricard wrote a very long letter with full testimony from virtually every priest and none he had ever known, which was a bunch of them, and along with the recommendation of the bishop himself. And within a few weeks, the answer came back. Gus was finally uh, going to seminary, he was going to Rome, he'd been accepted. <clears throat> and so he left uh, for Rome in February of 1880. Stopping off in Chicago first, and then New Jersey along the way, where he stayed with a German nun, Sister Perpetua, who had been uh, in Quincy previously, and her sisters, before boarding uh, a ship and going off to Europe, where again he encountered a German priest he had known back in Quincy, uh, where they said mass together and uh, had company on the way there before stopping off in Paris briefly. And then finally, he arrived in Rome on March 10th. 1880, uh, arriving at the Collegium Urbanum de, uh, de Propaganda de Fide, Propaganda Fide, I should say, excuse me, <clears throat> and, uh, being, and being met by the Cardinal Prefect of the College, Cardinal Giovanni Simeone. And he began officially his studies uh, on March 12th, which, as some people have noted, it was the Feast of St. Gregory the Great. You know, St. Gregory the Great was a pope of the seventh century who, among other things that he did, was uh, purchase the freedom of slaves uh, in England. So an auspicious beginning. <clears throat> and in fact, in his recollection, his years in seminary uh, for Augustus Tolton were some of the happiest in his earthly life. Uh, there at the propaganda, he was surrounded by seminarians, priests, bishops, who all respected him, who had no racial prejudices. And who treated him with the dignity and uh, and um, and respect that was often withheld from him in the United States. The students there hailed from all over the world, Europe, the Americas, Asia, and above all, Africa. Uh, and this gave him a sense of the church's universality. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, also gave him a sense of how exceptional the United States was for its racial uh, prejudices.
And in fact, Augustine felt certain that having been admitted to the seminary <clears throat> with the understanding he would go to Africa, that he should study about that place. And so he spent the better part of his, um, his time there learning all he could about that continent and its peoples. Everyone who knew him recognized his exemplary life. Uh, he was particularly well-loved by his fellow seminarians for his accordion playing. He played the accordion in his spare time and for his singing voice, apparently. And his faith deepened in the Eternal City, uh, where he served at Mass, obviously. He visited its wonderful churches, its you know, martyrs' tombs, and even kept a sketchbook of the places he visited. <clears throat> now, he was eventually ordained, uh, going through um, the various orders that they had back in those days. And uh, so you had four minor orders. He was ordained to four of those. Then finally, the last three are subdeacon, deacon, and priest. So after he'd been ordained deacon, he had to take a special oath <clears throat> to the propaganda, which required him to go wherever the Pope sent him as a missionary. And just before administering the oath, the cardinal said that informed him that they were not going to send him to Africa. Instead, they were going to send him back to America, back to Quincy to minister to Black Catholics there. He was despondent. Uh, he even came close to shedding tears over this. Why? Because he'd finally found a place in the seminary where he was respected, where he was, you know, seemingly he didn't put it in these terms. He was loved, accepted. Now to have to go back to Quincy, to go back where people hated him for just being who he was, this was a severe blow. But in the end, he took the oath. And on Saturday, April 24th, 1886, <clears throat> Augustus Tolson, uh, Tolton uh, was ordained a priest in the Basilica of St. John Lateran in Rome. And the next day, he celebrated his first mass in St. Peter's Basilica. <clears throat> Excuse me. His journey back to America, uh, unfortunately, was delayed for six weeks due to lack of funds, which the Vatican eventually provided for. His, um, his, uh, the head of the, the propaganda, Cardinal uh, Simeone, um, provided for this, basically. And on the way back, when he was stopped off in, in England, he had to wait for 12 days for a ship to come in to take him back to America. He met an Irishman whose name we don't know. <clears throat> who invited him to come with him on a tour of the continent while he waited. So kindness of strangers there, <coughs> excuse me. And when he came back uh, to the States, finally touched around in New Jersey, Father Tolton, and you can see the picture here if you're watching on YouTube of him and his Greta, kept the promise he had made to Sister Perpetua and held his first mass on American soil with the nuns at St. Mary's Hospital in Hoboken, New Jersey, where he had stayed the last time. And when he arrived back in Quincy, the entire town came out to greet him, under, of course, the auspices of Father McGurr, who got them all out there, who actually had a brass band waiting for him playing when he got off the train <clears throat> in Quincy. He then celebrated his first mass at St. Boniface to a more than packed house. People went outside the building waiting to hear him. 
And, uh, and by the way, it was a mixed race uh, congregation that heard him speak and then took up his duties at what was now, had formerly been St. Joseph's School he had started. It was now St. Joseph's Parish uh, for the Blacks in town. And he reestablished the school there, which had fallen away while he was gone in seminary. And Father Tolton became immediately popular um, uh, coming back to Quincy with his congregation. Uh, he was uh, well known for his preaching. He had a nice voice. He could sing very well. And even whites attended his sermons uh, there. Partly some of it, as you're going to see, for curiosity's sake, just to see the first black priest, basically. But in general, for the first year or so, things went fairly well in racial terms in Quincy. However, he was still having problems, as he would most of this time while he was in Quincy, with uh, his black congregation sort of slipping away from him, uh, partly to go to, con to Protestant churches. Um, um, this part he struggled with. He also struggled with some of the issues that his congregation had. Again, most of the African-Americans in Quincy were uh, tend to be poor. Some of them tend to lead kind of dissolute lives. And he had he made every effort uh, to uh, try to help them. Didn't always work out. <clears throat> Uh, some Protestant uh, groups um, attracted people with more lively worship services. So he had uh, that to deal with. And moreover, moreover his popularity um, led to these Protestant churches. There was a Methodist church and there was a Baptist church in Quincy. Uh, to sort of, I don't know if they were actively targeting him, but they basically tried to keep, you know, uh, uh, keep blacks from going there. And in, uh, in fact, his, I mentioned his, his sort of fame as he came back from, uh, as he came back as a priest, <clears throat> actually preceded him to Quincy. Before he, uh, uh, he came back to Quincy, he actually celebrated a mass in New York City, which was covered by the local newspapers. And he was required to write a, you know, a letter back to the, to the propaganda stating his progress of the mission. And his letter to Cardinal Simeone, um, he says people in neighboring parishes were selling his portrait for money, something he denounced, but he could do little to stop. Uh, and so he was in a weird way, the sort of, you know, facing racial prejudice at the same time from whites, also an object of, of curiosity. <clears throat> and so things went well for the first year in Quincy, Quincy but <clears throat> those twin problems of, again, Protestant opposition, also racial prejudice sort of wound up undermining his ministry there. Uh, eventually whites began to play a more prominent role in his parish and they were they did so because they were crucial for maintaining financial support of the parish. Again blacks were mostly poor they couldn't support it and so he had to give um, <clears throat> had to give speeches and he was invited to do this um, multiple times. Uh, in various places throughout um, throughout um, the country, actually preached in the South, um, preached in the cathedral in Galveston one time. Um, but this aroused the hostility of a priest in Quincy, uh, the priest of St. Boniface, Mother Michael Weiss, again, <clears throat> at a time when immigrant parishes were also, you know, facing, you know, cash problems, having your parishioners go off to another parish and give money there. I think is what set it off. That and he was a racist. Uh, but this is Father Michael Weiss, I mean, who was unfortunately also the dean of the diocese. Uh, loathed him for his popularity and his race. Um, as you can imagine, used the N-word about him behind his back. 
even though Father Tolton was tried to make friends with him, tried to be as friendly as possible, he simply uh, was opposed to him. And this was doubly bad because St. Boniface actually owned the building in which St. Joseph Parish has met. So Weiss was able to undermine Tolton's <clears throat> ministry by instructing, telling his own white congregants not to go there. And literally, literally at one point telling Tolton that he should minister only to black Catholics. To which Father Tolton replied, and I love this, he says, why, Father, we open the doors to the church. We do not people tell people to go out. We tell them to go into the church. Unfortunately, Weiss uh, had the favor of the bishop. And though Tolton never revealed what else he did to sabotage him, he did actually say in one of his letters that he was persecuting him for fear that it would harm his apostolate to the, to the, black, to the black Catholics. <clears throat> um, he eventually decided he needed to get out of Quincy. And so he wrote to the propaganda asking for a transfer to Chicago and the bishop agreed. And so in 1889, December of 1889, his mother, Martha, and 19 members of uh, St. Joseph's in Quincy followed him to Chicago. And the, um, uh, where he helped found the first national black parish, that is to say the first national parishes were for a nationality, for blacks only, <clears throat> called St. Monica's. <clears throat> Excuse me. With the help of the Archbishop of Chicago, Archbishop Feehan, who, who was kindly disposed toward him and told him in turn, said he loved the man, he was such a good bishop. Uh, and a group of core black parishioners who called themselves the Society of St. Augustine. They eventually set up shop in a, a storefront church, um, basically, and uh, in Chicago and began to try to build a community and a school. His mother came to live with him in the rectory and she acted as his secretary uh, for the rest of the time there. <clears throat> and the society, the St. Augustine Society, collected funds for charitable work, but again, he was forced to um, try to make ends meet by going outside the parish. He had to give talks. Uh, he gave talks to a variety of different conferences, and I should mention that St. Augustine Society was, uh, you know, a lay organization. Lay organizations were kind of important uh, in uh, Black Catholic life in the 19th century, having so few priests that were willing to serve them. And so he give, he would give, for example, he gave the first speech to the Black Catholic National Congress, which was formed in 1889 to promote the Black Catholic community in Washington, D.C. Uh, and as you can see, if you're watching this on, again, on YouTube, there's a, a, a poster of his image, uh, him giving a talk there. But as time went on, he had less and less time to do that at St. Monica's. He was so stressed for time. And it was a tough going for him. Um, the priests there were mostly friendly to him in Chicago, and they did what they could, but they were kind of in some ways in the same boat. Again, these are immigrant parishes. They're strapped for time. They're also strapped for money. Uh, and just in general, just to give you an idea of how different Chicago was back in 1890, around or so that, those, the, that time frame, there's only about 27,000 African-Americans in Chicago, most of them jobless and poor. And so again, he had to, to um, <clears throat> depend on um, help from the bishop and from uh, and from white donors to make this stuff uh, work work out, and even then it, it was it was tough going. After several years, he actually sent um, letters to sent uh, to future Saint Catherine Drexel, uh, asking for help. Catherine Drexel is the convert and uh, heiress 
famous heiress who um, donated to this cause. And over his period of his time in Chicago, she donated about $36,000 to the cause. Even with that money, uh, several years on, by the time he passes away, St. Monica's had not even finished their roof yet and couldn't pay that off until the debt was gone. So it was a, a monumental task, which you can see, he never actually lived to complete. <clears throat> by 1897, his health uh, began to fail and he experienced constant fatigue and exhaustion. Upon returning to his rectory from a three-day retreat, he collapsed and was taken to a nearby hospital. Augustus never regained consciousness and he went to his heavenly reward on July 9th, 1897 at the age of 43. His mother would uh, die uh, 14 years later, 1911. And without his care, St. Monica was uh, subsumed under the care of St. Elizabeth's Church in Chicago. So it ceased to be an independent parish. Only in 1917, when Cardinal Mundelein of Chicago appointed a father of the Society of the Divine Word, a religious order from Illinois, to run St. Monica's, would it even have its own pa uh, pastor again? And in fact, the church was abandoned, still unfinished in 1994, and then eventually demolished in 1945. And so Father Tolton didn't live to see uh, the fruition, uh, didn't live to see what he built, um, because it did eventually. Uh, come to fruition. His goal to provide a life for Catholic, for Blacks in the Catholic Church uh, did come about after his death. The last rector uh, of St. Monica's, Joseph Eckert, uh, an SVD priest, uh, would go on to become the rector of a seminary, St. Augustine Seminary, Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, which to this day has ordained hundreds of Black priests. The contacts he made with the Josephite order uh, which that order, which was meant to, to serve black priests and have black priests, is still going strong today. Uh, his connections with Catherine Drexel, she began, she gave more money after he died to get things off the ground. All paid off in the end. Because, if you don't know, after World War I, when the Great Migration came to the North, the Great Migration is the migration of blacks from South to the North looking for jobs, all of a sudden the black population boomed. And then later on, in the 1940s and 50s, when whites left the city to get out, white flight, um, black Catholics still had priests and parishes to go to in places like Chicago because of people like Father Tolton. Uh, and so it's uh, not, uh, not too far to say that because of his efforts and efforts like uh, him efforts of Father Tolton, but also uh, lay Black Catholics and, and, and the white priests who helped him. He did have a lot of support um, from priests, people like Father McGurr, who were kind to him, um, that the Black community was able to, to grow and thrive in this country. And virtually everyone who wasn't prejudiced recognized his personal sanctity during his lifetime. Um, I mentioned his uh, case for canonization has already been opened. Uh, no one doubts his his piety, uh, his uh, his goodness, his desire to help people, and it truly is one of the more feel good stories you'll find in the modern church in America. And it's been said um, that his life was a sermon, but it's perhaps more fitting in some ways to see it as a liturgy, uh, one in which he offered his life in imitation of Christ, uh, in opposition of those who, as the psalm says, hated me without cause, and yet uh, in the end uh, it, it came to fruition. Um, in the building of the church, both for his people and for the church at large. 